Hi everyone, welcome back to another Coffee Chat with Researchers. My name is Katie Butner, and today you're going to listen to my conversation with Dr. Potter. I'm particularly excited about this conversation because Dr. Potter walks us through some of the development of what I think is going to be a really incredible app in the field, and I'm excited for you to, to give it a listen. So stay tuned and grab your coffee and enjoy this next episode. So thank you so much for being here today and having this conversation with me. I sadly don't actually have any coffee with me, but only water, but you know, that's okay. I don't need any more at three o'clock in the afternoon. So um, <laughs> generally how I like to get started though, is to say um, welcome and also to ask like who's in the room. So can you give me a little bit of an overview of just who you are and like um, generally your research area of interest? Yeah. So thank you so much, Katie, for inviting me today. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So I am Sharon Potter. I am a professor in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. And I'm also um, the co-founder and director of research at the Prevention Innovations Research Center, which I founded with four other colleagues in 2006. And we've really taken a community approach to the prevention of sexual violence, which I take to include sexual assault, relationship violence, sexual harassment, and stalking. So I kind of use the term sexual violence for um, those four types of violence. And um, we really came together um, when we were um, developing bystander intervention strategies. And I like to think that um, the Prevention Innovations Research Center are some of the um, pioneering, has done some of the pioneering research in bystander development, evaluation and administration of bystander intervention strategies. And I guess I would just um, think about, like um, I've been doing, this work in some way or another since I was a first year student in college at the University in Albany a very long time ago. I was looking for a place to volunteer my freshman year like most people. And I ended up at Middle Earth, which was um, at the time like a peer um, mentoring, peer helping um, organization. And the, um, the students that I, you know, and it was in the days before cell phones. So we sat in a room and a hotline and waited for folks to call, slept over on weekends. And the calls that really struck with me were the um, people who had been sexually assaulted and how much blame they had put on themselves. Um, and just the difficulty of that situation, how it was being handled. And even though I went on to um, graduate with an accounting degree and work as a certified public accountant, I, um, I had a midlife crisis at 28, went, got, went back and got a master's in public health and then a PhD in medical sociology. And I'm back in this work. So it's this kind of convoluted story. Um, I think that's a good story. And there's a big part of me that like, of course, it's a good story. But there's a big part of me that's like, I want to like dive into the midlife crisis element, because I feel like a lot of people generally would probably be interested in like, what do you do when you decide that like the career you're in is just not the one that you're going to be in long term. Um, But since our topic of conversation is more about your research agenda, I won't take us on that tangent. So I think what I want to hear a little bit more about is, is so many things, but specifically, um, 
just for those who may not have as much experience or exposure to understanding bystander intervention, can you speak a little bit, a bit about like kind of what that encompasses and, and, and for you, um, maybe the, uh, the parts of that work that feel uh, the most maybe central to like how you continue to consider bystander intervention and a bit of that like evolution of where it is now. Yeah, absolutely. So when, um, for those of us who are a certain age, like we went to college and basically, you know, um, women were given rape whistles or mace and, you know, um, women were put in a room alone and told not to get raped and men were told, you know, put in another room and said, told not to rape people. You know, I, I'm like really, um, you know, trivial, trivializing it. But really, that was the message. And what, what we know from the research is that the majority of men are not perpetrators. Most men who perpetrate are serial perpetrators. And that, um, that there is a community approach to the prevention of sexual violence and that we all have a role. And I, I think that's what's really engaging to me, that it really moves it from an individual's problem to a community problem, right? Because we know that anybody can be raped. And so by thinking about it as a community problem, it's thinking about like, how do we engage friends? How do we um, make our community safer? How do we, thinking about college and, um, co college and university settings, how do we have our leadership engaged in making, changing the culture, making the university safer? I also do work for the US military and it's again, how do we make these environments that are safe and welcoming and respectful? And, and that just can't be done by, you know, telling people not to get raped and telling people not to get raped. It's a, it's a whole um, kind of larger cultural change. And a lot of um, the way I think about this draws on um, my interest in the anti-drunk driving movement. Um, when I was in eighth grade, three of my friends were killed by a drunk driver who left a bar um, on a Friday night and plowed through a group of kids. And, you know, um, coming of age, like being a member of the Students Against Drink, Drunk Driving, it's, it's really all about community involvement. And what people don't realize is like this notion of asking, um, taking away people's keys or giving people rides home or having designated drivers was not always the case. Like there's this... Um, story about um, parents, I think it's the late 60s, early 70s, they lost a child to a drunk driver, the child was on a bike and a drunk driver killed the child. And the judge actually wouldn't let the parents in the courtroom because the judge didn't want the jury to be unduly influenced by these, you know, obviously grieving parents so and you know like if I to tell that story today we're all like oh my gosh you know how could that have happened but that was not very long ago and I I feel like for sexual violence like we still need this much larger culture change and and that really takes community approach and I think bystander intervention strategies really move our prevention and response away from the individual and to the larger community. So I think that's really what motivates me and motivates me to continue developing and evaluating these strategies. Absolutely. I think that that's a really helpful sort of illustration and demonstration of like, because I think we, um, 
at least from my perspective, in working in the um, violence prevention and sexual violence field, uh, bystander intervention, like so many terms, <laughs> gets a little bit lost in, in what are we actually talking about, um, especially when we think about how we teach teach things and trainings and, and, and sort of the movement to just help people feel like they have more um, uh, power and options in situations. Um, so I, I think in that, um, there's a, a twofold question. One would be, as you have been a part of the work for for a little bit of time, and so you've seen its evolution, what do you see currently happening that maybe is moving that that mark a little bit more, like that you feel excited by, I guess? Um, because I, I think, again, um, there's been increased attention, particularly around campus sexual violence and understanding prevention efforts. So I, I think in, in just your experience, where are you seeing um, things that you're excited about? And then I wanna kind of transition and talk a bit about like your specific project and your specific work. But I guess in this moment, as you've seen changes and as you've been a part of um, you know this research center that's doing work and really, like you're saying, pioneering, um, the initial research and development work around what bystander intervention can look like, what are you excited about now that's happening um, that's come up newly kind of in, in the field? So I, I guess I'm still, um, I still feel like the field has a long way to go. Those of us who work in this field, um, even when we do prevention work, we are constantly having conversations with survivors. You know, people know, I feel like, you know, a lot of people know what we do, you know, in our job. And it's, you know, sometimes I fly a lot, well, before COVID, I flew a lot. And it's not uncommon to be on an airplane and you tell somebody what, what you were at a conference from and you automatically get a disclosure. So I, um, I, I feel like this problem is nowhere near eradicated. And um, I get really frustrated about that. And I, I still feel that, you know, within universities, that prevention is a box that you check and that um, so much of the response is based on um, schools not having lawsuits either from, from potential victims or perpetrator families. And I think um, the accused, and I think um, that's really frustrated. And I also think that, you know, everybody, like you're saying, throws around the term bystander intervention strategies, but bystander intervention prevention strategies when they're done well, are incredibly effective and, you know, skill building, because we know that um, prevention is not going to work unless people have both awareness and the skills to deal with the situation and recognize and deal with that situation. And what, you know, what I've come to believe over the years is that when you think about an incoming, you know, 17 or 18 year old in a large university or any university, it's going to take a lot for them to engage as a bystander and that there's a lot of education that needs to come first. And so I almost think, you know, some that in my perfect world, you know, we have these college students for four to five years and we would have like a complete curriculum that meets these students where they are both um, cognitively and intellectually because um, it, it takes work and, and it's a lot of culture change. So I don't know if I answered your question or not. 
Um, I, I mean, I think you did for sure. And, and either way, it, it gives some, some more detail and segue into sort of um, what you see happening in the field. And so um, I think you sort of laid the groundwork for a question that I would want to wrap up with. So, I'm, But I think in this, in the journey that you've been on as a professional, where has that led you now? Sort of like, so in that, what, what ongoing work do you have um, happening that you're, um, you know, just eager about or excited about, but yeah, just sort of what, what's in the works for you at this moment? Yeah, so I finished a study a few years ago where I actually interviewed um, people, it was only women, women who were sexually assaulted when they were attending university between the ages of 18 to 24, because what I think um, is missing from the literature is kind of like the lifetime implications of um, sexual assault per perpetration. So, and what um, these... Um, a hundred women or so that we were able to interview and survey, you you really see that this um, sexual assault is not contained in one moment. It has reverberations for, you know, whether or not the um, survivor drops out of school, transfers institutions, has huge implications for their long-term careers and also economic achievements, their family life. Um, their health. So, so I guess I always keep that in the back of my head. I've just um, finished um, two, we just had a paper published that actually compared college students and um, people who were not in college when they were sexually assaulted between the ages of 18 and 24. So, and again, you see these like long-term effects, which I think we don't discuss enough. And I almost feel like if these were more highlighted, people would be more willing to spend money on prevention because prevention is expensive and it is an institutional and societal commitment. Um, right now, I'm developing, um, I've, I'm evaluating an, um, a sexual violence prevention and response app that we're testing at 24 universities, which is really wow. Yeah. Um, and the really cool thing about the app is um, we've built it working with college students, with law enforcement, uh, with rape crisis center practitioners and school administrators. Some of my earliest work in um, bystander intervention strategies um, prevention is that unless the prevention strategies are talking to the target audience and really relatable to the target audience, people um, tune out. So one of the really cool things about my research is that I'm always constantly like doing interviews and focus groups with target audience members. Um, I used to spend a lot of time in the residence halls, you know, at 10 o'clock bringing pizza and soda and chocolate. Now, um, some of my younger colleagues do that because they're way more cool than me. But but it, it's, again, like really, um, really understanding where the folks are that the prevention strategies are targeted to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm excited. I'm like, there's a part, I want to dive into the, the app a little more. I think, um, though, my first question um, is if you're able to share, I don't know where you're at with sort of the, um, you know, public nature of, of your findings, but thinking about like what you're saying, that the long-term impacts and, and having people understand that, um, what are you seeing or what do you feel like is, is showing up that you would want people to know? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, one of the things that I think um, was really um, disheartening to me from the study is a lot of um, the people, and again, it was a snowball sample. It's hard to get a, you know, a national sample of survivors without a lot of money. And this was done on a shoestring, so it was a snowball sample. But, you know, we heard um, accounts from people who had been in, you know, um, pretty high-tech majors, um, science, you know, um, like a lot of the STEM fields. And in the aftermath of the sexual assault perpetrated against them, a lot of um, the women we spoke with um, either left school for a while, they tra- they were at, um, you know, institutions out of state and they decided to come go home. And so they were closer to family support or some of them even dropped out of school. But then there was a number of um, survivors who talked about us, how they were in kind of these STEM kind of majors. And they um, decided that, you know, it would be easier for them to be in a major like education or sociology. And those are great majors, but I I think about like the, and I'm a sociologist by training, I think about the um, the human capital and the contributions of these women to our society. And, you know, we, we wanna have parity in, in all kinds of professional fields. I think like you're saying, the ability or the more that people are able to understand the long-term impacts, like you're, I, I think it's so easy to dismiss sort of the one-time experience. Right. Um, and it seems incredibly valuable to put into context just the societal level uh, reverberations that are not so easily dismissed, I guess. Like, you know, there's a, there's a, as much as it's, I think, hard to do or hard to want to do, there's a benefit in thinking through, like, how are people outside of the field really going to understand this in a way that makes an impact? And Um, in that what feels like from your experience, why are college campuses or college-aged folks a particularly interesting or important group to be working with? Well, I actually, in a perfect world, would, you know, start sexual assault prevention work um, in kindergarten, age appropriately, you know, very much. And it, because I, um, I, in full disclosure, I, I know really nothing about football. Every, once in a while, I know who's in the Super Bowl. But um, a few, like this is earlier in my career, I had a um, conversation with one of the football coaches who was at our institution for a little while. And he was complaining to me about, you know, if one of his players is accused of sexual assault, they are removed from the game, right? And he basically said, you know, how he's getting these 18-year-olds and he said it's too late to teach them consent. You know, this he should not be the person to um, do that, that this should just be part of our culture, that this is about respect and this is about, you know, how we relate to each other as human beings. And it was really interesting because usually I'm not on the same wavelength as football players, but, you know, he really shared this desire that um, this this is really a societal issue and it needs to start um, in K through, K, K through 12. And I often um, tell the example of um, 
thinking about my bystander intervention work a, a while back, I, my daughter is a teenager now, but she was like in third grade and I was going off to give a presentation somewhere and it was a big deal. And she's like, mom, don't be nervous. You're just talking about, um, you know, people, bystanders. And she goes, this happens all the time with my, um, the kid in my class who has the peanut butter allergy. Cause whenever, you know, there's anything suspicious in the classroom, we make sure, you know, the friend with the peanut butter allergy is removed from the suspicious material. We get a teacher and you can just envision in your head, like a bunch of eight year olds getting themselves into action, right. To protect their friends. And why we can't do this with sexual assault is just mind boggling. It's the same skills that we all have as, you know, six year olds and, so I, I guess that's, you know, how do we change the culture? So I think about that a lot. That's like the sweetest example. Isn't it? <laughs> I feel like, yeah, let's just, let's package that as a training. Cause like, I feel like that would resonate well. Um, out of the mouths of babes, you know. <laughs> they know so much. <laughs> They really do. They really do. Um, yeah, I, I mean, to what you're saying, there's just, uh, there's no, there's none of the work that sort of really happens in silos. And also that, you know, the reality of doing adult level intervention or even young adult level intervention has already missed a lot of years of structure and programming and societal level influence. Um, so it's, you know, it's not a perfect solution. Um, but knowing that there's, with your app, <laughs> knowing that that is kind of where the work is going, um, can you talk a bit more about like what that app will allow to have happen? Yeah, so um, the app is really cool. Um, it's USAFE US and we're piloting it. Um, and what it's got prevention and response features. And it's so we have it on 22 institutions and it's fully customizable. So the prevention um, features are one of the features that students tell, tell, tell us about is that they're in these uncomfortable situations, but they just want to leave and not make a fuss. So one of the features is actually called time to leave and it lets you override your phone discreetly. So I could um, just, you know, if I had your cell phone, Katie, I could just um, type, I could override the phone and I could get a text from you that says, you know, Sharon, I'm locked out of the office. Can you come and um, bring the keys or I'm locked out of my dorm room? And there's no way for the person sitting next to me to know that I overrode my phone and that I kind of used you as my fall person. Um, we also have a version of the angel drink on it. And then we also have this um, tool called expect me where I can invite three friends to kind of for this limited time, watch me walk across campus or watch me walk home. And, and, but the minute that I get home or to where I need to be, you, you no longer can watch, watch me on my phone. And then the other cool things is it has um, all sorts of resources, both institutional resources and national resources. And then it also has a decision tree, like what happens if my friend is sexual assaulted? What happens if I'm, and how does it work at my institution? So, um, it's really cool. We've been um, evaluating it and rolling it out on the college campuses. 
And actually, um, that project led to a National Science Foundation i grant where I ran around the country with um, three of my colleagues and um, interviewed. It was like planes, trains, and automobiles for nerdy academic people. And um, basically, we were meeting with different um, college officials and um, advocates and law enforcement and showing them the app. And they said, this is awesome. You're doing it at the university level. What about high school students? So we were lucky enough to receive National Science Foundation funding. And we went in thinking we were going to develop dating, violence, sexual assault app for high school students. But we, again, working with the target audience, we focused group of high school students, their parents, principals, teachers. And basically, the app is a safe student app, and it um, addresses the five most common types of um, high school violence. So hazing, cyber and in-person bullying, sexual and identity harassment, and then dating, violence, and sexual assault. And it does have that time to um, leave feature, but it also has um, gamified social emotional learning. So people go on and they build an avatar and the avatars, you know, we have all these different versions of Alex, right? Um, race, ethnicity, hair color, eye color, eye shape. Um, so, and then as they go through the learning modules, they earn um, accessories for their avatar. So it's really cool and we're piloting that now. Um, with a new NSF grant. It's amazing. Yeah, it's just like, it, it's, um, I'm excited and encouraged to know and hear that like that work is happening um, in a way that is so collaborative also, because I think the point you were making earlier of just how vital it is that the many voices of stakeholders, including user and, you know, students. And I think it's just, there's so many different, and, and the more that we can do that in any of our research, the, the, the better, the better it is to actually respond to the problem, but also stick. <laughs> um, right. And I just, it's, it's, um, it sounds fascinating. Um, and so where are you in that process of like the rollout and the evaluation? What are the, what's, what's next? Yeah, so um, we developed, we were, the funding came before COVID. And so a year ago, March, we had to kind of move all our focus groups online and we did it. And we managed to release an app last September that we evaluated. Um, so this, so then we were lucky to get continuation funding. So we've been, um, we're going to roll it out now in seven schools and, and quote unquote more conditions than last fall. And yeah. really excited. The reception's been good. The student feedback is amazing. Um, working with teenagers is really great because they are very honest with you and they tell you exactly the way things are. And so it's been a really cool process. And we have a student advisory board. One of my colleagues is incredible at, um, I call her the teenage whisperer because she can get all sorts of information out of teenagers. So um, yeah, we're doing, we're going to be um, launching some pre-tests and, you know, and they're, they're, um, it's always the thing that the, the test subjects are under 18. So in the States we're working with, we of course need a lot of parental consent, which is not easy to get. Yeah. Um, the whole other conversation of like, when you want to do work that is based in you know, learning for a younger population, the the added hurdles of ensuring that it actually meets the need of that 
and understandably so, um, understanding why they are a protected population, but knowing that sometimes the funding and the structure of grants and research doesn't always line up with knowing the extra hurdles that if we want to be understanding and doing work in younger communities um, or with, with youth, you know that there's just more that goes into that. And sometimes there's just not the infrastructure to support that, which is too bad. Right. Um, because it's like, you know, like you're saying, you know, it's kind of where change happens. It's like the earlier we can start the learning process, which also means it needs, it needs understanding and research and evaluation and things like that. So. Yeah. And it's a great project and I have a, a great team. So I think that's also the other thing that like when things are frustrating, we can be in the conference room or over zoom and, and kind of debrief, you know, about the frustration. So I think that's a really, um, a good aspect of the research. Yeah. Um, so going back to kind of the, you know, being a founding person with the um, Prevention Innovation Research Center, can you talk about the work that's happening there and um, the focus of, of that as like a collaborative group? Yeah, it's an amazing group. Um, and it, it was founded by both researchers and practitioners. And all of our work, I think what's unique about the research teams we have is it's both practitioners and researchers because, you know, as a researcher, I'm not in the community day in and day out. So, you know, for researchers to do their work alone kind of in the ivory tower is not work that will be useful for the community. So I'm very much about applied um, research and, and really um, partner um, community partners and forming our work. So I think that's um, different. We're just bringing on a new postdoc. And I said, you know, this is one of the really cool things about the work that we do is we have these very collaborative teams. So, um, yes, yeah, so we're working on those two um, apps. We also are doing a, a project with um, colleagues at the University of New Mexico and the University of Georgia, where we're looking at um, the culture in engineering schools. And we've been um, doing a lot of interviews with um, faculty, staff, and students. And the interviews are can be really stressful, but really, um, really good information and hopefully we're um, doing this research. Um, some of my colleagues at Prevention Innovations Research Center are authors of the Bringing in the Bystander Program. And part of the work will be to adapt the Bringing in the Bystander Program so it resonates with engineering students. Um, so that's one of the projects we're working on. We also um, just won a uh, grant to evaluate a really um, incredible um, program focused, I, I can't yet say the name, focused on um, sexual violence with teenagers. So we're really excited about that. Um, and then we're also um, doing some work for the university right now. We have our senior vice provost for research is really interested in, in what happened to researchers' careers um, during COVID. So um, we've been looking at mostly female postdocs, research scientists, and professors to understand, you know, with all the additional burdens that we all took on during COVID, how, how has that changed careers? How has it stalled careers? How has it moved careers forward? And, and what can the institution do to, to support these folks? So um, that's it's a really cool working group, and we've been 
um, writing the survey together and, you know, going through the survey. And um, it's just been a great group of people that I've had the benefit of co-chairing. And then the other really cool thing is, I don't know if you've heard about the Every Voice legislation. It's these um, incredible college students who decided like universities needed to be held accountable for sexual assault. I, um, I think it was started by a student who was actually in Massachusetts, but New Hampshire was the first state to pass it um, a year ago, June. And it basically has um, colleges and universities need to use the same climate survey. They need to be doing it on a biannual basis during the same time. There's um, requirements for MOUs between universities and law enforcement and rape crisis centers. All universities have to have a confidential resource advisor so that if a student something you know bad happens to a student they can disclose it to this person who can help first help them figure out their options rather than going to title nine or the administration where they can sometimes lose control over the assault that's been perpetrated against them and then there's also prevention requirements so my colleague and i are working with someone at the department of education and co-chairing the state implementation of that um, legislation which wow yeah, which is what I do in the middle of the night. <laughs> so, but it's a it, it's been a statewide effort, and it's you know re really people just really understanding that this is a huge issue, and we need to figure out a way to intervene so people's lives are not impacted. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, I'm glad to know what you do in your free time. Um, <laughs> um, I think um, as we round out our conversation, kind of what I want to think about or hear from you is you've had um, just a huge amount of experience, including so much work outside of um, even prior to, to becoming a researcher and a social scientist. Um, when you think about the work in the field, what do you see as being like the priority areas or the direction in which you want to see this work moving? Yeah. So I, as I told you, like at the beginning, we did these interviews with survivors and one of the survivors who was now older, um, who had been sexually assaulted while attending university said, said this quote, and this is kind of like that it's always kind of in the back of my brain and some days in the front of my brain is that this sexual assault that was perpetrated against her was the bomb that shattered everything. Because what she was essentially saying is no piece of her life was left intact after the sexual assault was perpetrated against her, her friendships, her academic career, her work career, her, her view of the universe. And like when, and I think people don't understand like the, as we talked about earlier, you know, the lifetime impact of sexual assault. And I think about these people who, you know, have this type of trauma and it's not, you know, something like, you know, we can't give somebody penicillin like we do for strep throat, right? It's just so complicated. So if we could prevent, you know, this type of trauma and that, and so I guess like, my dream and, and is, and I have some great colleagues who are um, on board with me, is that really um, to scientifically develop and evaluate prevention strategies, there's a lot of snake oil out there and that's being sold for high prices because institutions just want to check the box. You know, so if, 
somebody would just give me a lot of money, I would like have this great team because there's I I'm so lucky to have incredible colleagues across the country. There's incredible researchers and practitioners doing this work. And it would just be so cool to do an audit of, you know, everything that's there, how it needs to improve and how we stack it. So we're giving, you know, college first year students programs and how they build and how their message reiterates. And it's not death by PowerPoint. It's creative, it's innovative, it's engaging. And I feel like if we could, you know, have like four years of, you know, this really um, compelling sexual assault prevention, then we're sending these people off into the world where they're going to be professionals, they're going to be parents and, you know, God willingly grandparents one day. So we're, we're having the um, impact to make societal change. And I, but I, I just feel we're not quite there yet because I don't think people understand the impact of sexual assault. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like that also gets at your answer to like, if someone gave you the unrestricted pot of money, what you would do with it question, it would definitely be that. Yeah. And, and I, there's so many people doing amazing work and I think it just needs to be pulled together in a comprehensive way. You know, when you think about the COVID vaccine, right, there was incredible people doing all these little pieces of work. And then there was a larger system that pulled it together so that there, there were effective vaccines. And why can't we do that for sexual assault prevention and response, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think what that gets at too is the reality of just how often that that is a, a lack in how we coordinate efforts is that there is oftentimes you know, as much as any of our research is new and innovative, it's also probably not the first time anyone's tried to answer some of the questions or, or attempted to, right? And so we end up, I, I don't think we're totally treading water, but there's an element of like, just not more coordination and ability and flexibility to connect across those pathways would allow us to make a greater impact long-term because we wouldn't be sitting in so much of uh, people doing similar work, but not knowing that they're doing similar work. You know, that the answer to the thing that I need probably exists out there. I just don't know about it yet. And, and in a, especially in a time where we are so overloaded with information that it is hard to really decipher um, some of this, you know, some of the stuff that comes up too. So um, here's hoping you get an endless bucket of money and you can, uh, you can handle that for us. No, and the other thing is exactly like what you're saying. It's it's kind of this commitment that needs to be made. There's so little money, you know, that I know like my fabulous colleagues at all these institutions are going for that same half a million dollar grant. Absolutely. So, like I love my colleagues and, and so it's like, you know, like why can't there be an, enough money for us to work together and, you know, and complement each other, just like you're saying to solve the yeah. problem. I, those are all the questions I have, but is there anything that you want to either leave um, our conversation with or any particular direction if folks are interested in learning more about your work, like where might they go or um, just if there's a, a, a resource in particular that you're like, if you're going to read anything, read this. Um, is there anything you want to close out with? 
Yeah. Um, so I would just say um, anybody's welcome to contact me at the Prevention Innovations Research Center at the University of New Hampshire. Um, and we are collaborating literally with um, people all over the world, both researchers and practitioners, which, um, you know, I think this takes all of us, all of these talents. One of my um, collaborators that I work with a lot, you know, is a um, technology specialist who's come up the ranks through one of the um, huge technology firms. So, like, I feel like um, we all bring kind of solutions to um, solving and ending um, sexual violence. So um, the, the one thing I would say is also um, going back to your pot of money as we finished another study um, looking at community colleges and um, students who identify as LGB have much higher rates of victimization and have had a lot of um, really difficult experiences. And I, you know, I would love more money to be channeled into um, being able to understand the problem and be able to reduce the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, definitely a thing that we didn't get to talk to you about in this conversation, but is um, certainly understanding the different experiences between like a community college versus a standard four-year university versus yeah. just technology schools. Like there's just, the, the, the experiences are, are so different and so diverse. And then on top of that, understanding the uh, ex different experiences of our intersecting identities and our intersecting realities and how much that compounds and influences what those experiences and the access to resources are like. Like there's just, like you're saying, there's hope in things that are exciting and progressive and moving the needle. And then there's also the reality just that there's so much more to move um, that we are certainly not in a moment where we are going to work ourselves out of a job, but maybe our children's children will find themselves in that position if possible. So I know I was hoping to work myself out of the job. I have this fantasy of like baking bread for a living, <laughs> but that's not going to happen. You know, who knows? You know, maybe yeah. fingers crossed. We still yeah. try for it. Maybe. <laughs> right. Um, well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate your time. Um, and I look forward to hopefully being able to connect more in the future and just good luck. Um, I'm very excited to, to hear more as your app uh, rolls out and, and just learn more about the impact and then how that will be distributed at universities and stuff. So that's exciting. Thank you so much, Katie. It was really fun to talk to you.